Whoa! Before we get started, I want to go over the four sponsors for this episode who make all this possible. They're fantastic, so go show them some love. The first is the best URL in the industry, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, driving mass adoption. That's why we're all here, right? To get every human on earth a digital wallet and to get them using digital currencies. Crypto.com's helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and a new card payment. Everything you could want is at Crypto.com. They've been longtime supporters of Off The Chain and recently announced a new exchange. So go help them out, download their app from the App Store, or visit Crypto.com and tell them Pomp sent you. There's nothing better in the world than a company helping to drive global adoption of this new technology. Another part of global adoption is making sure that we secure the various blockchains with computing power. CoinMine has built the best consumer experience in mining, hands down, no competition. If you want to help secure the blockchain and get started in mining, you can go to coinmine.com slash POMP, order a CoinMine, it'll arrive at your door, and you simply take it out of the box, plug it in, and connect to your Wi-Fi. You'll be mining your favorite crypto in five minutes or less. It is honestly magical. I have one running right now here in the office, and it's super quiet, it's got no heat, and every person that comes in the office asks, what is that? Every single person asks. It's a coin mine. The best part to me is that the coin mine comes with a mobile app that's super slick, and the company continues to push over-the-air updates to the device that add functionality, add tokens that can be mined, or increase the efficiency of the device. Similar to how Tesla does car software updates over the air, CoinMine's sending these passively to thousands of CoinMines around the world on a periodic basis. Pretty damn cool. When Farboot and the team pitched me on the idea of an Xbox or PlayStation-like box that could mine cryptocurrency in your home, I was immediately sold. I invested in the business, have a device personally, and keep telling people to go to coinmine.com pomp so they can save a lot of time if they want to get started mining today. And CoinMine has a partnership with our third sponsor for this episode, BlockFi. BlockFi is one of my favorite companies in crypto because they allow users to deposit their assets in a deposit account and immediately start earning interest. Think about it. If you keep your digital assets on an exchange or in cold storage, you aren't benefiting from any yield on the asset. With BlockFi, they allow you to deposit crypto and then get paid interest on a monthly basis in crypto. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in ETH? you can do it. Deposit Bitcoin and want to get your interest payment in Bitcoin? You can do it. The rates at BlockFi are currently some of the best in the industry. You can earn 6% interest on Bitcoin and you can earn up to 8.6% APY on GUSD deposits. I'm an investor in the company and think BlockFi is building really important and compelling infrastructure. So go check them out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com slash POMP. And that brings us to the last advertiser of the episode, eToro. These guys have absolutely crushed it over the years. Their founder, Yoni, was one of the original Bitcoin OGs and has been ahead of almost every trend in crypto. He built eToro to help people buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies, but he added a few twists, social trading, copy trading, and virtual trading accounts. Social trading is a feature where every asset available on the platform has its own separate social feed where people talk about the asset, share trading ideas and analysis, and even include various charts or graphs. Virtual trading accounts is targeted at beginners. If you're just starting out and want to try trading with play money, eToro will give you a virtual account with $100,000 in it to test, learn, and get comfortable. And so, then that brings us to copy trading, which is by far the coolest feature. This allows you, as a user, to select any other user's portfolio to copy. If you see someone on the platform you like, you can set your account to mimic their trades. They buy Bitcoin with 5% of their portfolio, your portfolio buys 5% Bitcoin. They sell 50% of their Ether position, your portfolio does the same thing automatically. Copy trading's awesome, so go join the 10 plus million other traders on eToro and start trading all the most popular crypto 
cryptocurrencies today. They're one of the largest companies in the space, and you can get started by going to eToro.com. Again, that is eToro.com, where the entire team's ready to get you started in just a few clicks. And don't forget, go subscribe to the Off The Chain daily newsletter. You can go to offthechain.substack.com. I write a letter of news, analysis, and opinion every morning that goes out to more than 40,000 investors. See you there. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Akeem Sawyer is helping to build the future through Decred. In this conversation, we discuss the current state of banking in Africa, how consumers are discovering and using crypto there, what Decred is and how it works, and why less developed countries are poised to leapfrog the world's superpowers today with the help of cryptocurrencies. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Bang, bang. I am here with Akeen Sawyer. We'll get into the name in a second. Uh, super excited to have you, so thanks so much for, uh, for coming to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Uh, we're going to start off real hot. We got to talk about your name, Akeen Sawyer. We were just talking about it. And you gave a, gave a good laugh. Sawyer spelled with two R's. Yep. Right? So S-A-W-Y-E-R-R. That's correct. Tell us a story. Yeah. I mean, so the basic story is I have, I think my great-great-grandfather decided to sort of branch off from the main family line and decided to add an extra R <laughs> just to be different. Um, and so now we've, you know, we have this curse of my name always being corrected. I have I have official documents with a single R all over it, and it's just not worth changing anymore. So I have like bank cards that have it misspelled, and it's like whatever. Yeah, yeah as long yeah. as you have my social security number, like it should be fine. And, and so uh, Sawyer is a common last name in West Africa, or yeah. So I think so. I think it comes from like basically from slave, slave trade. I think there was probably like a group of Sawyers that came back um, to Liberia to Freetown. Okay. Um, but a number of them decided to sort of basically trace their roots back to where they thought they were from. So you have Sawyers all through West Africa, from Liberia to Ghana to Nigeria, where I grew up. Um, so, but it's it's one. I think generally it's one big family that has links, yeah, and linkages, and so. And one a, dude was just like, "Hey, man, we're putting the double R on and roll." Yeah, and so I've, I I I have that, which is is unique, but it, it's more it's more trouble than it's worth, to be honest with you. Yeah, I I, uh, I guess if there's a single R, then people actually think that's how it's spelled, right? Whereas the double R, that's the one that they think they should be correct. Yeah, with. at the very least, too, if it's a double R, then you know it's like an African Sawyer as opposed to like a Sawyer from somewhere else. <laughs> so maybe maybe that's maybe that's worth it. I, lo- I love it. All right, so so let's go back to uh, you grew up in Nigeria. Yes, I did. So I was born in Massachusetts, actually. Okay. But um, a few months after I was born, my parents moved back um, to Nigeria. My parents were here for college and grad school and decided to move back afterwards. And where in Nigeria did you grow up? So I grew up in Lagos. Lagos. So Lagos is the, I think it's probably the largest city in Africa now, population-wise. Yeah. But it used to be the political capital as well of Nigeria, but that was moved... I think about 25 years ago, it was, it was moved to a brand new city that was built from the ground up. But Lagos is still the commercial capital of Nigeria. So I wanted to do this interview and not tell you what I'm about to tell you until you got here. Uh, I went 
two years ago or three years ago to Lagos. Okay. And, uh, you know, all the Westerners, all the, all the white people, they stay on Victoria Island, right? Yep, and they, that's and they, kinda, up, yeah. they, they hang out at the hotels and all this stuff. Uh, but the, uh, the friend that I went with, um, he basically had a, a buddy that lived in, uh, in Lagos, uh, near computer village. Okay. And, oh, and wow. so, uh, we stayed in a hotel and when we pulled up, uh, they had the guards outside with the AKs. And, uh, the first night I was like, Hey man, why are there guards outside? <laughs> AKs. Yep. <laughs> and and uh, it was one of these things where when you were looking at them, you're like, yeah, I get that they got AKs, but if someone starts shooting, I don't think those guys are going to stick around. <laughs> and so uh, it, it was a really cool experience, though, because uh, we would walk to Computer Village. Um, and for those that don't know, Computer Village is basically, I don't know, we'd say six block by like 10 block uh, area. That's just packed with electronics and computers. Yeah, it's and, massive. Yeah, and, and you can uh, get anything fixed there. You can buy anything there. It's it's an interesting phenomenon. It's a huge market. Yeah. And, and so when I came back from that trip, I actually wrote something I published publicly. It just said, "Look, I, I saw the future of uh, technology. It was that entire area was taking people who previously didn't have access to internet, computing, electronics, etc. And over, you know, I don't know if it's been ten years or so before uh, I had went and visited, they'd gone from very little access to now." It was highly connected. There was great inner infrastructure. Um, they had all the same devices, right? They had all, yep. you know, smartphones, all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of people, and it's growing incredibly fast. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people here in North America understand kind of the the demographic dynamics that are at play, uh, especially in Nigeria, but but in other African countries as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I mean, I think the African continent is probably the youngest continent in the world, right? And so if you're talking about demographics, every, just about everywhere in the West, you know, the birth rates are, are dropping. I think it's it's acute in Japan where, you know, they have empty houses because there are enough people, right, to, play, to replace the old population. So I think demographically, Africa is extremely young, lots of young people, lots of labor, and it's a massively untapped resource, mm-hmm. right? When you think about it relative to the rest of the world. Um, and I think... Investors are beginning to understand that, you know, that Africa is the next frontier, it's the next big market. And you're seeing people beginning to vote with their money, right, with investments continuing to increase, particularly like, you know, to fintech and the startup ecosystems across Africa are growing. And you have more and more sources of funding just coming in. Yeah. So give us, you've got a big focus on African countries. And and so maybe give us kind of like a lay of the land. Africa is not one country. It's a a continent that's made up of a bunch of different countries. Um, And obviously, when you have those different countries, there's different parts of the continent. Like, how do you view uh, the connectivity, kind of the tech ecosystems, et cetera, across Africa? Is there um, generalizations in terms of the West versus the East or the North versus South? Or is it really country by country specific? Yeah. So it's it's kind of like ecosystems, right? Okay. So I think Nigeria is large enough that it's an entity unto itself. Um, you know, there's a lot of tech innovation around just payments and financial services out of Kenya. Um, because M-Pesa was basically, it's probably the most successful mobile payments deployment, um, arguably anywhere in the world in terms of just adoption within the country. And so, you know, Kenya is large as well, but East Africa is almost like a block. Okay. Um, I think some of it is because of just how close those countries are in terms of, you know, the union they have. And with, and so in many ways, it's like there's a large ecosystem growing out of like, you know, East Africa with Kenya, Kampala, um, Rwanda now kind of coming up. Um, Nigeria has 200 million people, so it's an entity of itself. Um, you have pockets of development in Ghana and in South Africa, right? South Africa is a large country. 
um, probably the most developed, right? So it kind of sits on its own. And, and to, to a large extent, North Africa is sort of separate. Like I think oftentimes people think about Sub-Saharan Africa and the Northern Africans have sort of more of an allegiance with the Middle East and, and certain parts of Europe. Um, but I think, you know, I kind of see it as three or four core ecosystems um, with like anchor cities that sort of then bring, you know, lots of the region together. For sure. And, and help me understand, like, where's the education coming from? Right. So um, when I was there, what it felt like to me was there was a lot of um, now that there's connectivity. Hey, the Internet is this portal to information and, and, and to education and access um, uh, to other people and things like that. Sure. Is that true outside of Lagos, right? Because to me, kind of what you're saying, like Lagos is almost feels like a little bit different than some of the other cities or is that one thread that's throughout all of uh, these different ecosystems? So it varies, right? So, I mean, so Nigeria in particular, you have Lagos, which is a huge city, which takes a lion's share of all the tech investments, mm-hmm. right? The tech ecosystem there is pretty dynamic. Lots of investors come in, right? So Lagos kind of is the center of tech in Nigeria. But then you have, you know, pockets in the east, southeast of Nigeria, like Uyo, um, Port Harcourt, which is basically an oil um, city, but has now sort of begun to evolve into a knowledge city, right? And you know, the thing about tech that's interesting, and particularly like you know, coding and software development, is you have a lot of people who are just smart, who never really had access to higher education, who are self-taught, right? And like you said, with connectivity, it, it's sort of like an apprenticeship system where you have a really good developer and he just brings up the next generation, right? So there's a lot of kind of like an apprenticeship type approach where as the ecosystem grows, it's trying to kind of replicate itself, right? And there are people who don't have, frankly, other options, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's either that university admission is very limited, and even if you do gain admission to universities, the quality is just terrible, right? So for young people who are coming out of high school, the smart thing to do is figure out how to learn to code, um, and, and as much as possible, kind of hack your way through the system, mm-hmm. right? So I, like you talk about Computer Village. Like a Computer Village is full of hackers who are basically self-taught technologists, right? They took apart computers. They figured out how it worked. They figured out how to put it back together, right? So there's this culture of just trying to figure things out on your own and just a very strong culture of entrepreneurship. And I think you find that in Nigeria in particular, you know, but it shows up differently in other countries. You know, some other countries have just better education. So you'd go to Ghana, in my view, and you'd have a lot more university taught developers, right? Because the university system there is frankly better. Mm-hmm. Um, and in just about other parts, just about almost any other country in Africa, I think you have a slightly better higher education system in Nigeria um, as a whole. So it, it looks different depending on the country. But all in all, you know, I think the narrative is that lots of young people who are hungry, who are looking for, you know, who see a future in tech and see a way to kind of to, to get there. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the kind of like the spirit of entrepreneurship. Um, the, the most fascinating part of the entire trip to me was uh, we went and watched a couple of, uh, of uh, in the U.S., what we call soccer, but, but obviously football games there. And uh, literally how we would watch them is we would basically walk up to what kind of looks like you're walking to somebody's like backyard yep. and you pay them a little bit of money, you know, basically like a dollar equivalent here in the U.S. And uh, you literally walk and they've set up benches in front of TVs. There's 
exposed wires running to yep. uh, one to these TVs, and it's not like two people are watching. I mean, these things are packed with you know 40, 50 people all sitting there watching these games together. And and what essentially has happened is these young entrepreneurs have figured out, hey, if I can figure out how to get a TV, get cable to that TV, get the soccer games on, uh, and then charge people to come in just like a bar would or anywhere yeah, exactly. else. Yeah, um, exactly. It, it's pretty incredible to see that entrepreneurial type um, you know spirit at work, even in things that aren't tech related, right? I mean, that, that's just hey, people want to watch this game and I've got the ability to, to give it to them. But I think that spirit um, spills over into a lot of the tech things you're talking about as well. Yeah, you're right. And I think a lot of it is out of necessity, right? It's like, look, I need to make a living one way or the other. And people look for a way to provide a service in any way they can, right? So you're right. You have all these pop-up bars that you know show up during your know, Premier League soccer games on a Saturday or a Sunday. And literally someone's like business where they, they have one cable, they have a good TV, and, you know, they, they charge people to come and watch the games and sell them alcohol and, and food, right? Um, so you'll see that across, you know, many African countries where you have just just this issue of, so this concept called like non-consumption, okay. where for the vast majority of, of Africans, like at the bottom of the pyramid, they can't afford cable, they can't afford to have their own setup. And so what you end up having is someone that has figured out a way to take some commodity Right and make it cost effective for everyone. So now that TV and that cable box is a shared resource for the street or the neighborhood, and it now makes it accessible, right? And so I think it's the same way even with, you know, I guess we're going to get into crypto, but even the way crypto is proliferating across Africa, um, a lot of it is actually intermediated out of necessity, right? You have people that are tech savvy, that have figured out ways to buy and acquire Bitcoin. They know that Bitcoin can be used to settle global transactions. And they essentially become intermediaries for businesses who say, look, I need to import you know, mobile phones, for example. I need a market. I can't access US dollars. And some guy says, look, I can get you those phones. I can sell that transaction with Bitcoin. Like you don't know how to, you don't need to know how to use Bitcoin. You just need to know a guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so a lot of the industry is actually proliferating that way where the some guy who's figured this thing out, he's charging me a fee. After a while, I figure out what he's doing and then I cut him out because, well, I could figure it out myself. Right. And so that's, I think, how a lot of things proliferate across Africa. And with crypto, it's not different. Yeah. And, and I think it. Uh, part of what's fascinating to me about some of these markets, so the African countries for sure, uh, India, I've heard some similar stories where uh, people also aren't going on to like traditional exchanges to buy Bitcoin. They'll literally walk over to a computer village or you yep. know, some other area and they'll hand somebody physical cash and basically get Bitcoin in what's kind of like a black market type trade. Yep. Um, and, and I remember when I was there uh, in Lagos, um, that's actually how we switched US dollars into the local currency was not at the airport where they're going to take you know twenty percent and, and quote you some ridiculous exchange rate. Uh, it was a guy in a in a village basically, um, and so it's pretty interesting to see how like those systems already exist without crypto, and now crypto is just being fit into how they're culturally um, the people of a certain country uh, operate. Yeah, so I mean, so like you said that that there's these well worn distribution channels that exist, and you know eighty percent of Africa is unbanked or underbanked. Um, same That's crazy. Thing, right. Same thing for the economies. They're majority informal. So whenever you see a country that has like a banking sector, like it's oftentimes a lot smaller than it should be. Right. You know, banks in Nigeria primarily serve the government by buying government debt. 
Um, they might serve some large conglomerates that are chummy with the government, but that's really it. There's, there's no like active lending market mm. on a retail time, from a retail perspective. But in that same country, in Nigeria, we have what we call like savings groups, SUSU groups, where literally there are networks of people that lend and borrow to each other, right? These affinity groups, and some of them run into the hundreds of thousands, right, of people of members. What? Right? And and the funny thing is, most of these systems, particularly in Nigeria, still they're still run by like paper and pen, right? Physical ledgers, physical relationships. Your credit score is based on, oh yeah, I know your uncle and I know your brother and they were good for the money so you're going to be good for it, right? Because, I mean, the one thing that a lot of African cultures have is like the family name is very important, right? And so oftentimes credit is determined by what family you're from because they know, for example, well, if I lend you money and you sort of get in trouble, your family will bail you out to preserve the family name, right? And so there are all these kind of social ways in which credit, and they're pretty sophisticated in how credit is determined, but they're all off the books, they're all non-digitized, and I think the huge opportunity is now taking some of these cultural norms and figuring out ways to kind of digitize them such that you can still capture the, you know, those, you know, those systems for how credit risk is determined, but now you have a digital platform that's interoperable that gets you into the world, right? Where you can start harvesting this data and actually now pumping a lot more capital into these into these countries. Tell me more about the savings groups. How, how do those work? So savings groups, um, they're all over Africa and they have different names. Like in, so in, in Kenya, they're called SACOs, right? Now Kenya and Kenya and the East Africans, they're, they're a lot more regulated in that you can get a license to be a SACO in Kenya. And so you're effectively like a bank, right? Or a credit union is probably the best corollary. And, and basically, it's, it typically rolls out of these affinity groups where, for example, it could be a group of cat, you know, cattle farmers. And it's in our best interest to basically pool money together such that we can expand our assets, right? So you have 10 cattle farmers who no, no single one of them can afford to buy a new cow and expand his flock. But if we all contribute money to a fund, and we re-rotate, you know, taking out that fund every month someone buys a new cow, right? And it's funded by the group, right? And so savings groups typically rose out of affinity groups like farmers or market women who, for example, you know, you might have market women like a dozen of them all sell oranges and they say, look, let's get together, form a savings group, and we also can extract pricing power from our wholesalers, right? Because we can now buy in bulk. So a lot of these systems are developed through, you know, particular groups of people that were in the same industry that are basically pooling capital to grow their businesses, but also like sharing knowledge, right? Because the after effect of that is, look, if we're all calorie errors, right, and we're all invested in each other, if one of us figures out a better way to get, you know, an increased yield of milk, well, I want to tell everyone because we're all invested in each other, right? So it's, it's, my, it's, it's in my best interest to share information, to share knowledge such that, because I mean, the better you are deploying my capital, the more likely it is I'm going to get a return. Right, so that's how I think a lot of these savings groups typically grew. Um, in parts of East Africa, they're more formalized in certain ways with rules and you know actual regulations around them. In places like Nigeria, they're kind of pretty much off the books. Um, and for a lot of people, that is the financial services they access. Right, that's how some people you know borrow money to send their kids to university abroad. That's how people borrow money to buy a car so I could be an Uber driver, for example. Um, and 
all those things are informal. And the real opportunity is how do you now take those informal things and systems and digitize them? It's fascinating. Um, one, one of the... Uh Frameworks that has um, really caught my attention, and I think I've started to pay more more attention to over time, is this idea that you know that eighty percent unbanked or underbanked. Um, most people, I think, would look and say, you know, African countries were very far behind the West. Well, over I don't know, last five ten years, there's been kind of this leapfrog effect when it comes to at least mobile banking, right? right? So things like M-Pace obviously helped usher that in, uh, but there's others as well. Talk a little bit about how uh, you know is there an advantage for technology? who are building um, without the legacy systems in place, do, are they able to kind of accelerate the adoption and, and development? Um, or is that maybe just there's some edge cases where people point to and say, yeah, that happened, but that might not be the norm? Um, so I'd say yes or no. It depends on the context, right, or the country. I think there are scenarios where... Um, so so I'll kind of paint two stories, right? In Kenya with M-Pesa, you had sort of like certain things that aligned themselves. You had a government who backed it. You had a telco that had, I think, about 80% market share, right, Safaricom. And you had an incentive system that allowed agents, agent networks to be built out, right, so the commission-based system. And what was happening in the early years of M-Pesa was that I could be a middle-class person with a great job and I'll actually fund like five payout points, Right, literally go to those stores, pay for them to get the infrastructure, pay for them to stand it up, and then it's a business I'm funding. I get the return as the investor, right? And so that ensured that Impesa proliferated because you had all these points where you could spend and use it. So the distribution channel was incentivized to grow. You had a massive company that had single market share. Just about everyone had a Safaricom phone. So many things, and then the government really backed it, right? So a number of things aligned, and all of a sudden now you have this core infrastructure, which is mobile money, that you know became basically larger than cash. Mm-hmm. Now, once you have that ecosystem where I don't know, there was orders of magnitude of GDP flowing through M-Pesa, people started iterating on that by doing lending with M-Shwahiri, all these innovations on top of it because you had a core payment platform in place. Now, in Nigeria, it kind of evolved a little bit differently because in Nigeria, you had very powerful incumbent banks and you had telcos. And there was sort of like a, you know, a lot of the telcos are more diverse in terms of the makeup of capital, right? MTN is the largest, it's South African. You had Airtel that had some Arab money invested. But for, the, for, for most cases, Nigerian banks are primarily wholly owned by Nigerians. So politically, the banks had more power and the banks wanted to ensure that no one encroached on the power they had in the financial system. So the way mobile money has not evolved as well in Nigeria is because regulation and banking power has stifled things. And up until, I think, this year, telcos were not allowed to get into mobile money. I think MTN just got the first license as part of this. Why did that change? Um, I think it changed because, maybe for a couple of reasons. I think one, because it was clear that the Nigerian model for mobile money was failing. It was clear that, even if you look at the most of fintech and lots of funding has gone into fintech, it's still catering to the banked, right? So it's an improvement on the user experience for folks who are already banked, right? So I have a bank account, but now I have an app that lets me make USSD payments at point of sale, but it's still attached to my bank account, 
right? The guy that doesn't have a bank account is not going to use that product. So if you think of what's been happening in Nigeria in particular is a lot of iteration has been basically just cannibalizing the same group of customers, right, within the same pie. It's not really growing the pie. And I think, I think the central bank in Nigeria is realizing one way or the other that that model is not getting the results um, that it should be, and other countries are moving ahead. So it's either that you change course and say, look, the telcos are frankly naturally the best place for mobile money to operate out of, right? Because they own the core infrastructure. People are effectively, even in Nigeria, people are effectively finding hacks around mobile money. Like in Nigeria today, what people were doing was, you know, most cell phone services across Africa and in Nigeria is prepaid. So you buy a scratch card, you scratch off a code, and you load up money onto your phone. Now what people were doing was, you know, you could actually buy a scratch card, right? Get on the phone, and I owe someone money across the country. So rather than like send him 50 bucks, which I can't really get to him, I'll just buy a scratch card in Lagos, right? And give him the code over the phone or text it to him. And that basically is money, right? Because he can take that code and either load up his phone or he can resell it at a discount, right? So he could say, look, someone sent me a $50 crash card. I actually need the cash. You need to buy credit. I'll sell it to you for 48 bucks, right? So I'll give you an incentive to basically get a discount. So people were already using these mobile services that's crazy. as payment platforms. So it tells you that there is a market that says, look, I want to use this utility and this phone as a way to transact. And so I think the Nigerian model is beginning to shift. I think MTN has gotten a license. I think other telcos will follow. And I think we should get you know, a better outcome, a better result. Um, but I think, I think it's literally just, look, the current policy isn't working and there's a lot of frustration in the system as to why we're not getting the results in terms of financial inclusion that, that the government is targeting. Yeah, and, and speaking of government, what is the general sense of like the trust in the government, right? So some countries around the world, uh, there's fairly democratic processes. People, yeah, they know bad stuff happens, but for the most part, they trust their governments or, or at least don't think their governments are actively working against them. Uh, in other parts, it's clear as day, hey, my country's uh, government is corrupt and you know nobody here trusts them. Where do some of these uh, African countries actually fall in that spectrum? Um, so probably in the lower end of the scale. Okay. Um, in, in terms of they, they don't have high degrees yeah, of trust. Yeah, so a lack of trust in the system, right? And it's it varies, right? Some countries are improving and getting better okay. and, and are better governed and on a more positive trajectory. But I'd say like the bulk of African countries, at the very least, the citizens look at the government in very high suspicion. Um, because, I mean, the rife of corruption, I think Nigeria is the model for that. Rife of corruption, weak infrastructure, people are not seeing like physical investments. They're not seeing their lives improve, right? And you're also in a system where most things are informal, right? I was saying earlier today in another conversation that, you know, part of the problem with Nigeria as a nation is, you know, the majority of government revenue comes from oil sales, right? Oil is bought by foreign multinationals and foreign entities, right? So the Nigerian government, frankly, is getting no revenue from the people. And so even just that tells you that they're more likely to do the bidding of countries buying their oil, right, and setting it up such that that revenue continues than serving the populace and their, and, and, and their people. Right? Yeah, they're catering to their customer. Exactly. And the customer is not the Nigerian citizen. Right? The Nigerian citizen is just someone you just have to make sure, you know, things don't tip over to revolution. Right. And so, but what that has created, um, to your point is, 
you know, very, very low trust in government, very good, low trust in institutions, very low trust in banks. Um, anything that's formal typically comes with some level of a sense that that entity is trying to take advantage of me as a citizen and not give me like my, my due. And I think that's created a system where it's not only low trust, but people have to fend for themselves, right? Even just like getting power, reliable power is a problem in Nigeria, right? And so I think what that's created is a purpose that really says, look, I'm in it for me. I need to figure things for myself. And I think because of that, in many ways, I think you have a, a um, you have a captive audience for crypto because crypto is the ultimate like individual sovereignty tool that look I can kind of take things on my own. I now have a currency, I have a way to transact, and by the way, the government doesn't really care about me anyway, right? And so when I, so it also goes back to when people talk about regulation as an issue. I think for most African countries, the regulator doesn't even have the wherewithal to know what's even going on in those countries, let alone have any policy that can stop crypto in any material way. Yeah, it's almost like the lack of sophistication uh, gives them less insight, right? So if everything's cash-based, if everything's kind of gray or black market type uh, transactions, you have these informal economies, these savings groups, et cetera, uh, that can't, you know, in the US, the government knows what's happening because they look at the data, right? And they, exactly. And they, everything's kind of documented in some way. Um, I, I recently interviewed uh, Congressman uh, Davidson from Ohio, and he at one point even said, look, we've essentially empowered the banks to spy on their customers for the government, right? right? Well, if the people don't trust banks in Nigeria or some other you know, African country, so they don't put their wealth there, well, the government has no clue what they're doing. Right, and, and so it's almost like the, the uh, regulations can't affect them. Right, the difference between setting regulation and enforcing regulation. Exactly. If you have no way to enforce it, then you, know, you might as well not even have the regulation to some degree. Exactly, and I think and I think that's that's the nature of what's underground in in the majority of countries. Um, so th- that that makes for a very very interesting. And and then you think about it too, the fact that there are many industries or many sectors that are just greenfields. Like it's like there's no no one is servicing those people, mm-hmm. right? I think it creates a massive opportunity because you don't have a lot of incumbents to like work to, to, to fight against, right? You know, the banking lobby in the United States is pretty powerful, right? That understatement of the entire podcast. <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard to see them being on the losing side of, of some sort of grand bargain, right? Now, in Africa, most people don't even have banks. Mm-hmm. So you're not even competing with those entities. You're now trying to, you're basically competing with creating a pathway or a product that people can afford to consume, right? You're trying to solve the problem um, inherently. And if you can figure out ways to sort of provide utility to that marketplace, figure out a good UI and UX to serve them, then there's a massive opportunity because I think inherently, um, the way I kind of see Africa evolving is... It's, it's the ideal place for to empower like sovereign individuals. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the ideal p- way to say, look, you can be your own bank, you can be your own financial service provider, and moreover, you can be networked to this global marketplace where you can acquire products from anywhere. Right? So I see a future where Africans will source mortgages, source loans globally, not from their local banks. Mm-hmm. It'll be from some you know blockchain-based protocol where they can source you know capital from cheap. Um, you know, low or negative interest environments, figure out ways to program, you know, to, 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 to take out the risk in terms of interest rate risk. You just kind of figure out ways to program it into it. And all of a sudden you have a product that can like sell like, you know, you know hundreds of millions of people that yeah. never had access. Skirt, skirt.
Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com, you buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi, and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. So before we get to the crypto and, and blockchain stuff, the last question I have for you is, are there examples where um, the the distrust in the institutions and the banks, et cetera, um, the banks have like done bad stuff? Or is it more of just, hey, I don't think you have my best interest at heart because you know, your customer is somebody else and, and it's more um, kind of psychological? Or are there examples where, you know, like the Cyprus, where they know they took 10% of our money? Right, and, and and they actually seized assets, or, or uh, are there that type of examples, or is it more kind of psychological? So there's there's some of those, but they they, they kind of they kind of become things like so. If you think of the nature of banks, particularly you know lots of African banks, Nigerian banks, they tend to see their customers as a revenue source. Okay. Right. So I lodge money in the bank and all of a sudden I start seeing all these weird fees. I have this stamp duty, this fee, right? So there are all these costs, but then there are all these weird shenanigans that tend to happen where, you know, I might have a, a, a savings account and a checking account and it might cost me a small fee to move money between my accounts. All of a sudden you see that I made 50 transactions between my two those two accounts, which I never initiated, but somehow someone in the bank, maybe due to weak, weak controls or something, there's some nefarious activity where they're now creating systems to basically tax or pull or charge me for things I didn't authorize. So it's right? almost worse, right? Like if they just seized the money, at least they, yeah, they took my money, but this is like a, like a silent theft of the money. Right, and, 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 the thing is, and the thing that I think emboldens institutions is the lack of just strong civil organizations. Like there's very little recourse, right? So I have a couple thousand bucks in the bank. Like, am I going to sue the bank? Like I don't even have the resources to hire someone. So the power dynamic is, is so skewed that powerful institutions can get away with all sorts of all sorts of you know illegal activity and get away with it. So I, as the customer, has very little recourse, and you know lots of strong reasons to distrust these institutions. So what do people do with their wealth? Like where do they store their money uh, pre 
crypto and, and knowing about that? And then what's the culture of investing versus savings? Um, so a lot of people, a lot of people still store. I think the biggest store of value I'd say in Nigeria is real estate. Okay. Right. So I think kind of like in the U.S. as this culture of, oh, I want to have a house that I can live in. I want to have a house in my hometown. Like it's a source of pride, a source of, okay, you've made it, right? So I moved to the city and I haven't really made it till I build a house back home, right? So there's just a general culture of having property. Um, But I think out of necessity, it's the one store of value that just about everyone I mean, practically makes sense to put money into because even in high inflationary environments, there will be asset inflation too, right? So it's it's sort of like- inflation drives the asset price. Right, right. And so you sort of have this inflation, somewhat inflation protected asset. It's easier to acquire land and physical property. You can see it, feel it. And then- even for like nefarious and illegal activity, it's easy to hide money money in a house, right? I can I can I can hide it behind a corporate structure. I could have it as my cousin actually is a beneficial owner when I am, right? So typically, like I think the primary store of value, partially because we don't have a lot of financial innovation in terms of just other asset classes. The stock markets are relatively small. As I said, most of the environment is informal, so people's wealth is typically stored in landed property or maybe in a business that they're running. Mm. But even businesses tend to be more um, cash flow entities, right? People tend to take cash out of their businesses and store it in housing as opposed to grow necessarily grow their business because there's a lot of risk in tying up capital for lots of people in their business. Mm-hmm. All sorts of external risks which disincentivize people from wanting to kind of grow um, their businesses. So it's more about cash flow. What can I get today? How can I turn that over and how can I store it? Got it. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin, then we'll do Decred, and then we'll do kind of the, the broader ecosystem. Sure. Um, how does Bitcoin fit into this and, and how do you think about uh, awareness and adoption of Bitcoin um, across the various ecosystems in Africa? So, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that if you don't, because our markets are so informal, I think a lot of people underestimate what's going on. Right. I think there are lots of people who have been historically cut off from global financial services, right? Literally, your ability to acquire things globally out of a country like Nigeria, if you're not banked or fairly well connected, is hard. You can acquire foreign exchange. You know, and Nigeria is a very, very and a good number of African countries are very import dependent. Right. So basically the formula is, you know, foreign countries extract extract raw materials, they create finished goods and they come back and sell it to us. Right, so everything from cornflakes to, to, to rice, like we import everything, right? And because of that, lots of businesses are based out of trade, right? Sourcing goods, putting a margin on, selling it off, basic necessities. Um, but you can imagine that every time you have like an economic shock, like so the last recession Nigeria had, obviously all of a sudden foreign exchange got scarce because everyone wants dollars either to store and, and hide, hide their value because the currency was short to depreciate or they needed foreign exchange and increasing numbers to keep buying their goods and running their businesses but it was scarce right and from that shock some people realized oh there's this thing called bitcoin i can use to sell transactions right and i don't need to kind of figure out how to get dollars on the street i don't need to go to the central bank and that out of necessity, got people into leveraging crypto. And so you had a handful of, you know, sort of like Bitcoin-based payment companies that kind of came out of that. Um, You know, some of them got slapped on the wrist and got into a little bit of trouble running afoul of rules. But basically, 
that I think was the first use case. This idea that I can settle global transactions and acquire goods internationally to run my business and I could use Bitcoin. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that um, the permissionless aspect of Bitcoin uh, is exactly like a product market fit for those consumers, right? Those people who say uh, it's not because I want to do something that the authorities don't want necessarily as much as it is I don't have access, right? right? And so the permissionless nature of something like Bitcoin is, yes, it can uh, circumvent authority and, and kind of rules and regulations at, at times. But if you don't have any access to begin with, you aren't worried about rules and regulations because you don't have access. And right. now this says, hey, if you have an internet connection, you now get access. Yep. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty special. Uh, and then you spent a bunch of time uh, working on uh, on Decred. So talk a little bit about uh, what Decred is, kind of um, where your um, your interest there is, and, th- and then what uh, what's going on in Africa with Decred. Yeah, so I mean, so, so Decred, I mean, at a high level, is iterating on Bitcoin, right? And so is this idea that you can have a solving store of value, but we believe that, you know, blockchain as a protocol has and will have many, 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 many more uses beyond just being a store of value medium of exchange, right? So I think the ethos of Decred is this idea that you can build, you know, a decentralized autonomous organization, right? So a lot of what we do at Decred is effectively building all the parts and features that would allow us to evolve into this fully autonomous entity, right? So things like governance become very, very important because we see ourselves more like a, almost like an economy or a nation state than just a simple money protocol. Now, you still have to be a strong store of value. You still have to have all the security. Um, and I think with our hybrid proof of work, proof of stake system, you know, unit for unit, we're 20%, 20 times more secure than Bitcoin, right? But How does that work? So, so, um, so unlike Bitcoin, you know, Decred is a hybrid proof of work, proof of stake protocol, right? We still mine um, blocks similar to Bitcoin. We're still going to have a 21 million dollars, 21 million supply, but the difference is every block, as it's mined by um, miners, also has to be validated by proof of stakeholders. So that's people who own Decred. Um, you can buy what we call tickets, and this ticket basically gives you a vote. And what that vote essentially does is every time a block is mined, there's a pool of these tickets. I think the optimal number is about close to 41,000 of these tickets that have been purchased. And five of these tickets get called up pseudo-randomly to basically vote to validate that block. And, and you have to have at least three, you know, three tickets voting and a majority voting in the affirmative. So what that does is it does two things. One, it aligns incentives of stakeholders and miners, right? Because effectively, the mi- miners cannot operate outside of the will of ticket holders who could basically invalidate blocks if those blocks violate a rule or a tenant of decred in any way. What happens if the miners validate and the stakers don't? Is the block invalid? The block is invalid and the miners lose the reward. So the incentive now for miners is you have to basically comply. So everything from, um, you know, Unlike, I think Bitcoin, Bitcoin is backward compatible, um, Decred isn't. So when we have a, um, um, a change to the code base, basically all the miners over a period of time, which oftentimes is you know, generous, you have to kind of upgrade 
to be able to now be on the active or valid copy. And so if a miner, for example, is working off a different version of the of a software, like all those blocks would be invalidated because you're not on the current version of the software. And I guess it works the same way if the miners uh, don't validate a block, then stakers as well. You, you need both, right? Yes. You, you need the, the kind of consensus. So you kind of need both, right? So it becomes this symbiotic relationship where both sides need the other, but ultimately ticket holders effectively are like the Senate. Or if you think about lower house and upper house, like they hold more sway and you have to get them um, aligned. Um, so we have a hybrid proof of work, proof of state system, um, but we also have, you know, 60% of block rewards go to miners, 30% go to ticket holders, um, and then 10% goes into our treasury, right? And this is basically where all the funding for the network comes from. So developers who are building, myself, anyone who works for the network, whether full-time or part-time, is paid out of this treasury that's getting 10% of every, every block reward. Um, but that becomes very, very integral to basically the long-term goals of Decred, where we believe that over time, there'll be features that become critical and important. Right? So we released a privacy implementation on Decred a couple months ago, right? Because privacy is important. The ability to opt into to have private transactions as a second layer, so it's not on our base chain, but as a second layer, we think is important. And we think that the constituencies within Decred that would want that as a feature. Um, we, we, we went through a proposal and we're gonna build a DEX um, on Decred because we think that most DEXs today are not really DEXs or true DEXs. There's, a, there's someone in the middle capturing some rent, right? And so we think that is not just important to decred in terms of being able to over time be interoperable with other tokens and have a more you know active ecosystem. But we just think for the ecosystem, we need a real DEX that is permissionless and open to everyone, right? So effectively, what decred really is is we're we're saying, look, we think Bitcoin solved for some really large fundamental problems, but we think that we can iterate upon those things and expand it even and project it out. So I think there will be a future where you'll have, you know, corporations that are built on the blockchain that have, you know, a means of exchange, have governance, have voting rights, right, can program that in any way they want, but they're not subject to necessarily, you know, the borders of any single country, right? And we already see that begin to happen with multinationals, where large multinationals like Apple or these large companies, they're pretty powerful. And it's kind of hard to put them within one nation state. Like, so how do you regulate and manage an Apple or a Microsoft that is in you know, over 100 countries and multiple domiciles um, and is effectively, in many ways, behaves like a nation state in and of itself? Mm-hmm. Um, we think that you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain platforms are that next iteration that basically take out all of the friction in, in, in markets. Um, and we think that governance becomes really, really critical because it needs to be transparent, it needs to be a fair game that anyone can participate in. Um, and as much as possible, you want to avoid ways for it to be gamed. And so personally, I think that delegated systems create problems, right? De- delegated systems are systems that are not quite clear, where there's some intermediary who's now I'm delegating my vote to. Like that just opens things up for the same problems we have with nation states, where it's open for capture, it's open for corruption, right? And we think eventually, especially as value accrues to a network, the stakes get higher, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's more, there's money more built, incentive. There's more incentive to basically game the system and capture it for by a small group of people who might be savvy or whatever it might be. And, and we think those are huge risks um, broadly to the crypto space. 
Um, but specifically for Decred, you know, those are things that we actively are designed and we actively look at to, to make sure and solve for. So that's how the um, kind of the hybrid um, mining and staking model works and, and kind of what Decred uh, at the base chain layer is. What are some of the ecosystem things that either you're most excited about or you think are the most popular uh, in and around Decred? Um, so I think fundamentally, the, the thing that I think makes Decred very interesting is, so Politea is our off-chain um, governance platform. What, what is it called? Politea. Okay. And and so it's basically a way for, so I talked about that treasury, it's basically a way for anyone to propose ideas that get funded by the treasury. Okay. H- how much is the treasury in terms of like on an annual basis right now? Um, so the, I think currently treasury, depending on the price of Decred, is yeah. probably in the range of 12 to $14 million. And that's what's sitting in there, or that's kind of like so the annual revenue to so, the treasury? So that's what's sitting there currently. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what the annual revenue is, but our burn rate is basically, we're, we're burning what is coming in, and mm-hmm. we're not necessarily like eroding the current base. Got it, okay. In terms of numbers. But hopefully, you know, as the price goes up, then you should be able to, you should be retaining mm-hmm. more and more mm-hmm. um, in dollar terms. Um, but anyone in the community, anyone, anybody can basically have a Polter account, propose ideas. And the idea here is that, you know, that fund is to be is to fund things that are beneficial to the network. Right. And I think the thing that's very interesting about Decred and unique in many ways, it's not just that we have this platform, but it's about how we reach consensus. Right. And so one of our taglines is, you know, we want to make the best decision based on the sum total knowledge of the network. And whenever proposals come in, you know, one thing I found to be very fascinating is that there's a process of debating the merits of a proposal. People chime in, people chime in on social media and also the platforms. And, and part of the goal one is to learn. So people are asking questions and pushing things saying, why do we need this? Why is this valuable? And you find that other people who are knowledgeable in the community are essentially trying to inform everyone as to why this is a good idea. So there's a process of basically, in my view, upskilling in terms of knowledge, the community, such that ultimately, hopefully, we're making the best decision. Um, but I think that process also creates a, it's a system of trust building in many ways. Right, because you begin to sort of identify folks within the community that seem to have good ideas, who know very particular things. And I think it attracts people who want to engage in this very democratic process in many ways, where you have a stake in the game, but you have a say in how basically the value in the network is spent and doled out. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think in the first year, Politea has been live for about, I think, 13 months now. Um, a lot of the proposals that have come through, a lot of them are sort of heavily around like marketing. Um, so we hired, you know, Ditto as a, a PR firm because we needed more awareness for Decred. Um, recently, we passed a proposal that was competitive for market makers to just improve the liquidity of Decred on certain exchanges because, you know, we'd heard and that there are lots of potential investors who are interested in investing in Decred, but it's not liquid enough, mm-hmm. right? So we're able to basically in many ways, just in time, rally around the community to kind of like invest wisely in things that we think will benefit 
um, the community. D- does that also put an importance, and I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but does that put an importance on the way that uh, people communicate the proposals, right? So it's almost like uh, the merit of my idea is important, obviously, uh, but also the way that I can rally support around my idea, um, given that it is more of a democratic process. Um, you know, if you and I have the same quality of idea, but I'm better at rallying support than you are, then I have an advantage. Do so, you worry about that or think about it? Yeah, so, well... I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. So typically, the more successful proposals or the things that increase your likelihood of of being successful is being known, Mm -hmm. right? So for example, you've been part of the community, you showed up on our chat channels, you've asked questions. Like typically the best proposals are ones where someone has an idea and they start basically talking to constituents. Like, I think we should do this. Here's my idea. And you get feedback, right? It's like in politics. Real time. They build consensus. Right. <laughs> and and you get, so you get immediate feedback saying, well, that sounds great, but maybe you should think about this. Maybe you should think about that. So what typically happens is for the vast majority of proposals, by the time they actually hit the platform, like a lot of people in the community have heard about it, have given feedback and have shaped the proposal, right? And that really, to me, is what you want. You want to be able to, you know, go through a process which is still relatively informal. It's informal, but it's a way to kind of get buy into what you're doing, get people's inputs, potentially you know make compromises here and there, or improve the proposal such that once it hits Politea, you already have like a group of people who are like commenting and supporting it because they've been clued into what's been going on, mm-hmm. right? So I think you know there's a premium on people knowing who you are, you being visible, and people knowing that. You're aligned with Decred, and because at the end of the day, it's still about knowing the entity you're dealing with. And I think we're, we're hyper, in particular, and for good reason. You know, we're, we're hyper against transactional folks who are just coming. They see something they can take and they can leave. We're more about people who see this as a repeated game, who are here for the long haul, and and who really want to stay and and help grow the community. Got it. And, and um, I'm assuming that uh, the miners, one of the aspects I'm really interested in is kind of goes back to a little bit of the conversation with African countries and, and uh, also the hybrid component of Decred, whether you're mining Bitcoin, Decred, something else, uh, this income generation that crypto unlocks, right? right. Um, it really democratizes uh, the ability for people to earn a living. Right. And, and um, I think we've seen that in some countries like the Venezuela, where, you know, the the uh, income of an average citizen is so low that literally one single S9 or S17 could double or triple their income. Right. right. And it's just all you gotta do is plug it in and connect it to, um, to the Internet. Do you see that um, in either African countries, just in crypto in general, or do you see some of this taking hold with Decred um, in terms of like income generation or democratization of the ability to earn? Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's manifesting a little bit differently over okay. with Decred, right? So, if you think about being able to sort of mine a cryptocurrency, there there's capex related to with that, mm-hmm. right? For sure. So I have to have, and even if it's you gotta get the hardware, right? You yeah. get the hardware, and it's becoming even harder for most chains to actually even mine it without some serious hardware. Now, I think in the case of Decred, we have a process through which contributors get paid for their input. Right. So even if you're, for example, you're organizing meetups on Decred, we have lots of resources you can tap into, presentations, things that anyone who's really bought in and savvy can say, look, I want to host a meetup and you can get paid and reimbursed for it. Right. That's income. Right. And that takes just some savvy, some ability to promote and market the event. And it's a 
you know, what I consider like a low skill um, level of contribution. And you can get reimbursed for hosting the event depending on the turnout. And that's pretty transparent. And and so that's one way. Um, we have developers who are part of Decred who are across a number of African countries and they contribute to the platform. They build code, they deploy code, and they get paid in Decred. And, you know, Decred, regardless of where you are, coming into the community as a developer, you get paid the same amount of money. Now, that becomes very compelling from, for some, from an African in a secondary city with very, very low cost of living. Um, I, mean, I did some back of envelope math. You know, I think you know, most of our developers or devs in Africa are probably making you know, three to five X what they would if they're a full-time deployed locally at a company, mm-hmm. right? And so all of a sudden, it makes it a very, very compelling case to contribute in meaningful ways and get paid by the network in this non-sovereign um, store of value that you can that only you knows that even exists and you can access anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and there are lots of protections around that as well, such that, you know, you're not, you know, you're not putting your money in a bad bank that's like, you know, killing you and taking all the value and extracting costs. Um, if you have to flee the country because there's a conflict, as long as you know your keys, you know, you can recover it, it your It sounds account. like you're, you're really um, kind of convinced that that, that sovereignty of, um, of crypto, you know, Bitcoin, Decred, et cetera, the ability to give you the power as an individual, um, it aligns a lot with the, the psychological um, state that uh, various people in countries in Africa uh, already are, are um, kind of contributing to their society or participating in their society. They're in that mindset. They are. And now you're getting a piece of technology that is just kind of putting that in hyperdrive almost. Right. And if you think about the Delta, right, the way I like to explain it is when I think about crypto in the advanced world, the first world, like it's an evolution, right? Yeah, I can get banking services. Yeah, my banks might not be the most optimum, but I can access cash. I can access the financial system if I'm not nefarious in the U.S. very, very easily, right? If I have a good credit from a good credit risk, I can access lending and loans, right? And so in many ways, I think crypto is a massive improvement on many fronts, but it's an evolution. I think in the African context, it's a revolution, right? Because you're dealing now with giving people access to things that they never had, right? So I never had a way to sort of have... um, you know, value stored in a form that now can become collateral such that I can borrow against that, right? I I never had a way to be part of a global network where, like I said, I could potentially source, right, um, um, financial products, very, very low friction, very, very low cost, and I can deploy it where I I am, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that makes a a big difference because I think think for a lot of people in Africa, crypto will will be the very first financial services product they interact with in any formal way. That's wild. That's absolutely <laughs> wild for people in the West to think about, right? Where, or a crypto-based platform of some sort. Yeah, and, and, and but it does make sense. And, and um, I think this is, goes to the argument, uh, maybe the guys like Multicoin have, uh, have talked a lot about kind of the exchanges uh, are quickly becoming uh, the financial service providers uh, globally, right? So if you think of, right. um, you know, kind of North American uh um, ecosystems on the financial side, pretty well developed. Europe, pretty well developed in in, uh, in a number of countries. Uh, even China, right, pretty well developed, sure. et cetera. 
the continent of Africa, not well developed, right? Nope. South America, a lot of places, not very well developed. Uh, if you look in kind of Southeast Asia, not very well developed in a lot of cases. And so uh, if that first interaction is with a crypto exchange or a digital wallet, et cetera, those people are actually at the tip of the spear, those products at building out an entire suite of financial service products that can give people access to income, to credit, to you know all these tools that you or I think are kind of normal. Obviously, in those countries, they just either uh, don't have it in a, in a very popular way or they don't have access at all. And, and so giving them access can uh, be pretty, um, pretty important. Yeah, I, mean, I think so. And I think, you know, when you when you add to the fact that um, beyond that, I think some of the tools are building a decred will also address some of the people aspects of crypto around governance, around how decisions are made, around empowering people, but also just making sure it's transparent. Then you're also solving other problems that are inherent with lots of African nation states, where you have poor governance top down from governments to institutions. And if you can now create a, a fairer blockchain-based system where the governance process cannot be gamed is fairly clear, decision-making could be decentralized, right? All of a sudden, I think you you have a means through which um, you have a new operating model for institutions on the African continent, potentially, such that anyone who's now funding initiatives in Africa through these channels has certain assurances that they have never had, right? So counterparty risk now becomes something that can be solved because there are new ways that can identify who you are. There are new ways that can lock capital and release it on a certain schedule through smart contracts, right? There are many tools now you can employ leveraging blockchain that actually solve for these structural issues you see in these emerging economies that all of a sudden, if it takes out all these transactions costs, it makes investing into these nations more compelling, right? It makes it more compelling if the jurisdiction through which arbitration is handled is on a blockchain. It's not subject to an unfair legal system that basically is, you know, is in favor of those who are powerful. I'll, I'll take right? it even a step further. <laughs> Alex Gladstein, the uh, the chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation, uh, he was the first person to turn me on to this idea. He said, imagine foreign aid. He goes, in a lot of cases, foreign aid that goes into countries all around the world, not, right. just, not just African countries, but anywhere in the world. A lot of times that foreign aid's given knowing that there's a corruption tax. Of right? course. So we're gonna, we're gonna give um, Nigeria $100 million. $80 million, maybe, will make it to some form of a charity or, or a, an aid-type organization. There's another tax at that point, right? And the people may get $30 million of that 100. But that $70 million that, quote-unquote, got taxed, that went, went into the hands of the people who control the organizations, the government, the banks, yeah, I mean, et cetera. I mean, I think, I think the global or the, the legacy global NGO market is, is a big ruse. Like, literally, it's a big <laughs> subsidy for these countries because if you, if you look at charities just on average, like, over half of the monies they come in just go to operating these charities, right, or these NGOs. So the first lump is you're creating jobs for, you know, Americans, wherever the source of funding comes from, right? Now, that the piece that goes to the, gets into the country, corruption erodes a bunch of it. And where does that money typically land? It lands in foreign business accounts, mm -hmm. right? So all of a sudden, that money's in Swiss accounts, Right, piling up in these Swiss accounts and it's developing European economies, right? Because what's the Swiss bank gonna do? It's gonna put into the system and invest it, right? So, in many ways, it might, it, it's a huge subsidy that actually, and not only does it not benefit the beneficiaries locally in these African countries, it leaves these African countries on the hook for the debt. 
where most of the benefits are accrued to the originator of the of 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 the investment in the first place, right? And I think that you know, funny enough, I think that even that's one area that I particularly and personally want to see crypto and blockchain totally just revolutionize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because well, especially if you can give the aid right to the people. Right, right. So for, you, you literally avoid all of that nonsense, and it's just what's your digital wallet, right? And I have a hundred thousand people now that have digital wallets, and I'm going to make sure every single person gets their equal fair share of that aid. Right, and but even in the operations of a charity, like for example, like some of the work that Binance Charity has been doing in Uganda is remarkable, where I think effectively Binance covers the operating costs of the charity. Um, I think the charity gets um, donations from. Other third parties, but dollar for dollar, every dollar that goes towards beneficiaries ends up in the hands of the beneficiary. And there's a path to sort of audit that and see where that money is going. And so I think, in many ways, I'd love to see you know blockchain and crypto basically destroy this market where, um, frankly, the beneficiaries are not receiving the funding they should. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting areas where I think crypto. Um, can bring in transparency, reduce friction, and and actually help people more, more so than they're being helped in current systems today. What is um, what's either the craziest or the the most inspiring story that you've seen with somebody on the continent of Africa interacting with uh, crypto or blockchain? Like, what would be the the one story if you could tell people? Here's a great example uh, or a crazy example. Uh, what would it be? Hmm, crypto in Africa, crazy example. I'm trying to think. I think that, you know, like I said earlier on, some of the examples I've seen is you you, you have these cottage industries growing around leveraging crypto as a utility, right? So, for example, I'll give you an example. There are are a number of exchanges across Africa now, like real digital exchanges, but there's been a whole industry of effectively – what I consider like liquidity and wholesale providers that have come into the space. Okay. Where, for example, I have access to an exchange in the wherewithal to acquire Bitcoin, but then I'm reselling that Bitcoin or access to to those pools to others that don't have the wherewithal. But I'm actually giving them utility. They're paying me a fee for my trouble, right? But the, the market is expanding because someone has seen an opportunity one, to get a return. I mean, there have been very periods of time across Africa where the price of Bitcoin was an order of magnitude higher than it was in other markets. Like examples where Zimbabwe, when Zimbabwe was close to the brink of blowing up. Also, it was like I mean, 50% higher. You know, I think there was a time when, when Bitcoin hit 20,000 or got, got close to 20,000. At one point in some exchanges in Zimbabwe, Bitcoin was selling for $60,000. Crazy. Right? And so, so when, when you think about the margin that's there to, to, to be had, of course, people are going to enter that market and try to then intermediate it, right? So there's a lot of crazy stuff happening where you now have these sort of like fly-by-night bankers effectively running these informal shops. But what that is doing is I think it's increasing awareness because, you know, when you when you run a transaction on my behalf, the next question I'm going to ask is, what did you do and how did you do it? <laughs> and I'm effectively trying to eventually get you out. So I think that's helping to kind of proliferate 
And this happens in every crypto. market, right? I mean, yeah. like literally it's, hey, you and I live in a village. We don't have access to a car. We know someone who has access to a car. They're going to go to uh, the city. They can go buy X, Y, or Z thing that's available in the city, not available in our village. Hey, pick that up for me and I'll pay you some fee when, right. when you bring it back. It's essentially what's happening yep. here, right? It's just you have access to uh, that exchange because you've actually gotten an account. You know how to use it. I want Bitcoin. I give you some cash. You go buy the Bitcoin. I mean, they're, they're, they do, they even like weirder custody thing solutions I've seen in Africa where, you know, you can buy Bitcoin over the counter. Mm-hmm. I go to a store. I give them some cash and they give me literally like a code. I don't think it's really, they don't give you the secret key or your private key, but they give you a code that basically is good for a certain amount of Bitcoin. And people people are trading those receipts, Crazy. right? Because it's a store of value somewhere. It's like it's stamped somehow to value that it's a valid receipt, right? But I can basically, you know, it's almost like going to a pawn shop where I'm like, I give you some cash, right? You give me a receipt that represents the amount of Bitcoin. Look, the Bitcoin moon last night, I'm coming back to cash in, I'm getting more cash. So you have all these sorts of interesting ways that people are now creating a user experience that allows for others to use it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and taking advantage of these opportunities. And, and, and this happens in, uh, another example that I use a lot is uh, innovation is, comes out of necessity a lot of times, right? And so if you're there, you don't have access to the exchange to actually buy it, but you want the benefits of the store value, people come up with these types of things. Right. Um, the, the my favorite example of all of this is uh, the economies that are built within uh, prisons in the United States, mm. right? So uh, they trade toilet paper, they trade ramen noodles, they trade right. cigarettes, right? All these things that begin to have monetary type properties because they become medium of exchanges That's right. or stores of value. It's because innovation is the product of necessity, yep. right? They don't have Necessity's anything else. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, yep. and, and, and so I think that that is, um, you know, it's funny how this replicates over and over and over again in countries all around the world. Um, and now we're seeing, I think, Bitcoin and crypto be uh, uh, the beneficiary of it um, across the ecosystem. Uh, before I wrap up, uh, rapid fire questions. What um, what would you say is uh, the most important company in crypto today, other than Decred? I was about to jump on and say Decred. (laughs) The most important company other than Decred. Um, So this is one that popped up to mind. Um, Placeholder. Okay. Oh, interesting. And and I think the reason for that. um, So I think think personally for me in my my crypto journey, Chris Berniski has been very, very pivotal. So those that don't know, uh, Placeholder is an investment firm based in New York, uh, run by uh, two guys, Chris Berniski and Joel, is that right? Joel Monegro. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, and they've been big proponents of uh, Decred along with a whole bunch of other stuff, but but have been pretty early and uh, and done a lot of work in terms of publishing their ideas and things like that. Yeah, and so I think for me, it's personally in that, I think a lot of my early crypto journey, I kind of relied on Chris quite a bit and he was quite accessible, right? Just bugging him, asking him stupid questions. And um, so that's one. But I also think that I kind of brought him up, and Chris and Placeholder in particular, for just sort of like the culture of asking questions and trying to figure out what's next, right? So this idea that, you know, innovation didn't end with Bitcoin, but there's so much more we can uncover, right? And the whole ethos around them really trying to invest in the future, trying to, not just in terms of making investments in companies, but also kind of pushing further like research, 
position paper is. I mean, I think a lot of my perspective on how I see the markets have come from some of the like seminal blog posts, posts on you know fat protocols and the idea that you know okay maybe value is not going to accrue to middleware, and the fact that they're they're more than willing in many ways to contradict themselves as they get more information, mm-hmm. right? So the fat protocol thesis was we think that our value is going to accrue to these base layer chains. And as more information as the market has evolved, you can see how their positioning is changing. And they're now saying, look, things are changing, things are evolving. We think the dynamic is shifting and that certain things, and our our thesis is maturing and evolving. And I think just having that culture and ethos that we don't know what the future looks like, but we want to be part of it. And we want to be part of bringing it to bear. Um, I think not only serves the ecosystem well, but in many ways, I think it's it's a lot of the basis on which Decred is also built. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that we want to iterate, iterate into the future, we want to see what's next, and we want to be able to build, implement, and execute on the features that the network is going to need. For sure. What's the one regulation you would change or improve if you could? Um, in what domicile? Here in the US? Wherever you want, you pick. The one regulation? Mm. I like talking to people who have global <laughs> mindsets because you can now you first you gotta make multiple decisions so, here. So there's a body so well I don't know if I'll call it a regulation. Okay. So I think, you know, there are a number of laws, but the whole body of laws that have basically allowed monetary policy, global monetary policy power to reside in the United States. Right. I think if you if you think about you know, and it's a whole it's a whole number of laws, but Man, you're bringing fraud. out the big shots. <laughs> no, but I mean, they're, 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 I mean, after the Patriot Act, there are a whole yeah. bunch of laws around global financial systems that got mm-hmm. passed through. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't even know what was going on, right? But over the years, increasingly, the U.S. has gotten a much more dominant position and say. I mean, all commodities are priced in dollars, mm-hmm. so basically, the whole of Africa relies on. Fed monetary policy that effectively determines the price of goods coming out of African countries. That's a problem, right? That's a sovereignty problem for Africa. That's a, that's a, right? And so my, so I think that whole body of laws that essentially, you know, backs the U.S. as a reserve currency, but it also has weaponized the dollar as a, as a tool um, to cajole and, and, and kind of beat countries into doing the bidding of the U.S., I think, I think, I think those set of laws are not only bad for the world. I think they're ultimately bad for the United States, because I think invariably what it's created is it's fractured all the post World War II institutions, where every country felt like they had a say or a seat at the table, and it's forcing other powerful domiciles to say that any way in which we can weaken the dollar as a reserve currency, we're going to do. Right? And so it set the game that basically has now said, look, one way or the other, we're coming after the dollar. Whether it's the Chinese, whether it's the Russians. Right? I think ultimately that's bad for the United States. It's almost like uh, it's good short term, long bad term. And what you do uh, if um, you look at like the political climate in the U.S. Um, so there's a group of people who uh, they call themselves never Trumper, uh, Trumpers, right, which basically uh, anything other than Donald Trump. Right. That's what they're in for. Right. 
Well, that's kind of what's happening in the geopolitical world where you're getting China, Russia, you know, a bunch of these economies and, and governments are saying, you know, basically never U.S., right. right? They're just saying like anything else other than a U.S. based or a U.S. dollar based system uh, is better. What are our other options? Right. And so I think that actually uh, in some weird way, uh, the U.S. government is driving more awareness and uh, potential adoption of Bitcoin than they realize by weaponizing their currency, by, by doing all of this stuff, because almost like they they've uh, they realized they were powerful. Then they started to implement that power. Then they abuse that power. Right. And then eventually what, what ends up happening? Everyone revolts. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, it's one thing if you're a government and your citizens are thinking about a, a revolution because you've got a lot of control. Right. We see that in, you know, Hong Kong and China right now, et cetera. Um, and and uh, th- there's just challenges for a, a group of volunteers or people to kind of coordinate, et cetera. But when it's other countries that are revolting against you and they're banding together, I don't care how powerful you are, right? You can't fight everybody all the time. Right. And so I think that that's a, yeah, a really good point. For you're me, right. For and I point. think what makes it worse is, you know, the U.S. as a, a government is going to fight a war on multiple fronts because there's a revolution from within, right? There's a backlash from within and there's populist movements around this idea that globalization hasn't been fair to everyone, mm-hmm. right? And so I think the U.S. is facing an internal mutiny on some level, and is now facing a crumbling of its allegiances internationally. All in the meantime, all in the while, um, I think we haven't figured you know crypto regulations. It's still kind of a very gray area. And meanwhile, other countries are accelerating full steam ahead. Um, you know, I think we need to wake up um, as a country to really try to figure out what we want to be when we <laughs> grow up or grow, grow older. Grow older, right? And it's not it's not looking good because we're just in this sort of gray area and. Um, you know, things need to change. Yeah. What's the most important book you've ever read? Oh, the most important book. Um, Antifragile. Okay, why? Nassim uh, Taleb. Well, I think because it, it's... So, I mean, I, 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 my first degree is in economics. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the first books I read that had a very... A much more practical view on... So like behavioral economics, right? So beyond the theory and things you learn, it really talks about fundamentally, you know, certain things that make you resilient as an individual, as a company, as an entity, and this idea of antifragility, right? Where the, where you know you're able to, you know, things that don't kill you actually make you stronger, right? And I think just the the tone of the book and and how it kind of puts everything on top of its head, it, it sort of create at least for me the way I kind of read it, interpreted it is. It, it forces you want to think differently, but it also tells you that there's a different way. Mm-hmm. Like, there's another way. There's another way to look at things. There's, another, there's a better way to do things, right? And I think that's part of also the attraction to crypto and, 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 and Decred and blockchain is this idea that the system we have today in many ways works, but there's always a better way. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why, you know, things, because they've been the same way for 50, 100 years, need to remain the same. They need to evolve. Before I finish up, I'll let you ask me a question to bring us home. But uh, aliens, real or not, you believe? Um, no, I don't believe they exist. Whoa, hold on. You're one of only three people that have ever... You're, this is blasphemy on this show. <laughs> what, why, uh, why are you a non-believer? You don't believe in aliens? No, I, I don't believe in aliens. Because why? I, 
Why? Because I think the whole design of the system, of, of the earth, of the universe, or anything, I think it was created by God and God created man. And ultimately, everything was designed for whatever his goals are in terms of okay so humans and the population and i I don't think god hedged so i don't think god created another race somewhere else just in case we screwed what about animals (laughs) no but they're all on earth right so everything right so why do you create all the other planets i don't know that's a good question um (laughs) but we haven't found any aliens yet so i am i'm living within the understanding and the framework for which i think you know i interact with daily and i can kind of say is real um but so I'm going to throw, throw you for a loop now. Ready? <laughs> I'm sure you are. Uh, I saw a video recently online that I tweeted, which was a, uh, I think it was an octopus or a jellyfish um, or, or some kind of hybrid of it deep in the ocean. And it was uh, flying, like you know, gliding uh, in the water. And it was going over top of various, what I'll call um, kind of environments. So one was more of a rocky sure. kind of light colored one. One was a darker, what looks like kind of like um, seaweed type environment, etc. And as it was going over each one of the environments, it was changing colors and it was completely camouflaged. Like it, it was scary right. how it did it. And at the end of the video, it goes down into the rocks and it literally looks like it hardens and turns into a rock. Oh, wow. And all I kept thinking to myself is humans may be the least prepared species on this planet to deal with bad shit because something like that is incredible. Scary. But, but I also think that if, if you also kind of follow the, you know, um, not creation, what's the, what's the corollary of creationism? If you follow this idea that, you know, things evolved over oh, time. Oh, evolution, yeah, yeah. Um, and evolutionary theory, like, a lot of things had to happen in perfect balance for life to actually happen on Earth. Agreed. And I think that I just don't think that there's anywhere else in the in, in in the solar system where all those things align so perfectly to create life. All right, last question for you: Are dinosaurs real? Well, we have skeletons of dinosaurs we dug up, so they, they were real. At well, some did point. we dig them up? I think so. All right. Just, just making sure if, if, if you went 0 for 3 with me on aliens, things in the ocean, and dinosaurs. I think everything is here. All right. Um, everything has evolved, evolved from here. I, I just, I, I mean, there's no evidence here against the fact. So look, look it, uh, there are not a lot of people who come in here and say they don't believe aliens, <laughs> but uh, that may be a good bet. Is the fact that everyone else has consensus that aliens exist? Maybe the the uh, the, the counterintuitive bet is actually the right one. Yeah, that's, that's how you make outsized gains. Being <laughs> for sure, being on the other side of the trade with the crowd. So. Exactly. What uh, what one question do you have for me to uh, finish up? Um, question for you. Uh, I guess what makes you really optimistic about the the crypto space? Like, why have you dedicated your life and a lot of your time and effort into the space? Like, what really gets you up? It's the ultimate speaking truth to power. Hmm. Like, there's a lot of people who do a lot of things and they rely on their ability to uh, coordinate resources. They rely on their ability to uh, use information arbitrage. They rely on their ability to uh, use violence um, to do things to other parts of the population um, in every country that uh, 
puts people at a systematic disadvantage, right? right? And so whether you look at something like inflation that actually drives wealth inequality, whether you look at something like uh, seizing of assets, things like that, um, I think that Bitcoin, crypto, and and even blockchain more generally uh, has the ability to empower people to fight back. And um, (laughs) the part that I like about it, uh, especially having um, deployed in war environment, et cetera, is that it's a peaceful way to fight back, right? right? You you don't have to kind of revolt in the sense that people have historically thought of in terms of, you know, go fight or or, or protest. Um, You can do it in a way of just, I choose to opt out. I choose plan B, right? I choose to store my wealth somewhere else, or I choose to earn my income by securing a network, um, et cetera. Uh, and I think that that's a pretty powerful idea um, that just hasn't been around, you know, for very long. And I think it'll ultimately uh, become more and more popular as people kind of get aware of it. Awesome. Cool. All I right, agree. <laughs> Listen, I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to do this. Uh, you are now the resident uh, expert on off the chain of all things uh, crypto and uh, the African continent. So we'll have to bring you back as, uh, as things continue to evolve and uh, do this again in the future. For sure. Thanks a lot. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.